Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. This is the word of God for the people of God. About two years ago, can you hear me okay? About two years ago, about two years and one minute ago, <laughs> um, my friend who I'm, I've spoken of before, who has a doctorate in education, but mainly a focus on all things Cuba, has visited Cuba many times and speaks fluent Spanish, called me and said, my friend who was coming to visit from Cuba is finally here, and we would like to come by your house so I can introduce you to him. And I said, that would be great, but I'm not at home. I'm over at my parents' house. And she said, okay, we'll be over there in a few minutes. And my mother had about half of a homemade pie in the refrigerator, which is always a good time to stop by my mother's place. And she got that out, and I made a pot of coffee, and here came my friend and her friend from Cuba. This was a friend who was a real extrovert. Even though English is his second language, he could talk to a post. And he's a great guy to take to a party because you can leave and go to the bathroom or go to the punch bowl and you'll know he'll be okay. He'll find someone to talk to while you're talking to someone else. So he engaged all three of us very well in conversation. And my father at one point said, you know, this is the first time I've ever met anyone from Cuba. And our new friend said, this is the first time I have ever met anyone from Alabama. <laughs> and then our guest said, sir, what year were you born? And my father said, 1924. And this Cuban fellow, knowing so much about our history, said, so... How did your older relatives feel about the Civil War? And my mother and I <laughs> leaned forward. We had never asked or heard this question answered. And my father said, well, my grandmother didn't feel very good about it. And he said, why was that? My father said, well, because when she was a little girl, she watched her father walk away from the house to go to the battlefield, and he never came back. So I was grateful that we could have a guest in our home so that I could learn a little bit about my family history. I got to thinking that I had eight great-great-grandfathers, and if they were all within age range of each other, maybe they were all in the Civil War. 
Half of them were on one side, and half of them would have been on the other side. But I think about my great-grandmother, whom I never met, who grew up to raise seven children, way before the benefit of hospitals to help you give birth, way before penicillin, way before, way before, way before. She was a woman of great faith, as were all of my grandparents and great-great-grandparents. She was a stern-looking woman, a beautiful woman who looked down at us from the portrait my grandmother had hanging in the living room, watching us as we played on the floor, looking like someone who had undoubtedly lived through some hard times but had never lost her faith in God. This woman in the portrait, a little four-year-old girl who had said goodbye to her daddy and had never seen him return home. David has been saying lately that we are called to finish strong, finish this year strong, but nobody said finishing strong would be easy. Nobody said growing up with no father because he was killed in the Civil War would be easy. But she was called to finish strong, as are all of we, all of us. (laughs) I remembered so much stuff already, and I was feeling really good about myself until I ended without a direct object. Okay, anyway, all of us, all of we people, whatever. Let's talk about Karl Barth, who never said all of we. <laughs> Our scripture today is from 2 Thessalonians, which we used to think maybe Paul wrote, but now our academicians are saying probably Paul did not write, uh, but probably was someone was writing in the style of Paul. Someone was a follower of Paul and wrote this letter to people who needed to be reminded not to fall into the trap of idleness, of laziness. Barth said, there are no New Testament letters that are written apart from the problems of the church. So if you ever find yourself longing for the good old New Testament times when everything was rosy, just remember that each one of these books of the Bible in the New Testament, each one of these letters to a real congregation, was dealing with real people in real places. And some of these relatively new Christians believed that the end times would come any minute that Jesus would be back any time, and therefore it would be pretty much the end of the world when the believers would be swept up in a great chariot swinging low and carried up to heaven. This belief in the end times was very present in the hearts of the hearers of these words and in, of people of other cultures at the time as well. So instead of being afraid of the end times, some of these hearers had thought, well, Do we really need to finish our work? Do we need to really be busy if we're all about to die or all about to be carried up to heaven? Why don't we just kick back and relax? Well, 1982, Prince, who made many, many hits while I was a teenager, came out with a song called 1999, and he made the end of the world sound like the most fun thing ever. Um... He starts out saying, everybody's got a bomb. We could all die any, any day. So before I let that happen, I'll dance my life away. 2000 party over. Oops, out of time. Into the world. So tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? 
That's exactly what these people in the Bible were saying, except they didn't have Prince and his band and Apollonia and Sheila E. and everybody singing along behind him to underline these words. But they figured the world's about to end. Let's party. Let's relax. We needn't think about tomorrow. Well, we know that the world didn't end in 1999, nor did it end right after these people were living. The world is still going on. And we are still laboring. We still realize that nobody said finishing strong would be easy. And we are still called to work hard and do the right thing. Jews and Christians had always praised the value of labor. So we and people in these Bible times would have remembered those words from the book of Proverbs that talked about the importance of not being lazy. In 6.6, we hear, Go to the ant, you lazy bones. Consider its ways and be wise. You ever seen a lazy ant? No. There's another one. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are the lazy to their employers. And how about this from 15? The way of the lazy is overgrown with thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Now think about that. If your driveway, let's say, is overgrown with thorns, what have you not been doing? Cutting your vines, ripping them out, and making it a nice highway for you to come and go on. You don't have any thorns and vines because you have not been lazy. You have been industrious and you have kept things clean around your house. As we've finished this pledge campaign, we've all recently turned in either a card or written on an email or called up on the phone and said, I will pledge thus and so amount for this coming year. We have finished strong. Nobody said finishing strong would be easy. Sometimes writing that number down is not necessarily a joyous experience. Even though I make a pledge every year and I try to make the most righteous and appropriate number on what I turn in, it's not always super fun. When some months I think, gosh, I wish I could have one of those fill in the blank. It occurs to me that I drive a 15-year-old car. I've been thinking about that lately and thinking, you know, if, if you walk into a place and say, well, my car is 15 years old, people kind of go, oh. <laughs> but then if you say, in my garage, I have a 100-year-old car, then people say, oh, bring your antique car. We all want to look at it. You must be a very interesting person. How neat that you have a 100-year-old car. So I will show you in 85 years. Give me a chance. I will show you my 100-year-old car. I get 41 miles to the gallon, and so I'm not turning loose of that thing anytime soon. So maybe that's not the best example, but there are times when I think I wish I could splurge. I wish I had a little bit more wiggle room. I know God loves a joyful giver. <laughs> I'm working on that, and maybe in the next 85 years I will be, have a PhD in that. Nobody said finishing strong would be easy. That is for sure. I'm still thinking about last Sunday night when we did hear the Reverend Dr. Robert Turner come and speak to us about the 1922 race massacre. And he did such a wonderful job. Um, part of our hosting was to put up these big, I don't know, 10 foot tall, 8 foot tall 
panels that chronicle the race massacre and have pictures of before and after individuals and groups, places, buildings. Uh, Michelle Place has brought those for us and we're so grateful to her for doing that as a part of the Tulsa Historical Society. So we were educated in more than one way last Sunday night. And I know there are people that I hear a lot saying, why do we have to keep talking about the race massacre? Why can't we just get over it? Well, it's not as though the race massacre happened and then the following day, everybody got back to normal and everything was okay. And in fact, it's taken generations for us to get where we are as far as things being made right and they're not quite right. We have to keep talking about the way people were treated in the Greenwood area on that horrible day. When we look at our schools, which ones get more money than others and so on, I go back to my own life. Think about when I was in ninth grade, I was miserable at my neighborhood school on the south side for a variety of reasons. I had 45 people in my French class and on back to school night, the French teacher said, I pride myself on keeping index cards going. For, it has, each card has a kid's name on it, and I make sure that each of my students gets to speak once during the hour. Can't learn a language that way. My mom, as a language teacher, came home that night and said, we're getting you out of there. I put in for an application. I, I was going to say put in for a transfer. That's not really what they call it, but... Uh, we didn't live in the neighborhood of Booker T. Washington High School. That's north and east of where the race massacre occurred. But I applied at mid-year, and I guess somebody had been kicked out or moved away or something because I got in, and it was a change that affected everything about who I am today. I'm still so grateful that I wound up going to school there. I was shocked, however, when I got over there. Well, I was shocked by a lot of things, but one thing was I was a year behind the other students in the French class. First year French, I was super behind because I had gone to my neighborhood school and only been allowed to speak once in French class. I was good at French. I was interested in French. By the time I'd been at Booker T for two years, I won the national French test for the entire state of Oklahoma. So I did some hard work of catching up, and then I realized I had one of the best teachers in the state teaching me how to speak French, and then I majored in it in college. Not that I use it on my job all that much, but I think it really helps your brain to learn a second language. Could work on my Spanish a little bit, but I know that did wonders for me. So I was astonished to see how far behind I was. I was also astonished to see how awful the state of the building was where we went to school. It was and is such a fine school, but when we went to the auditorium, me, for the first time for an assembly, I noticed that the paint on the walls was coming down in great curls from away from the walls. All the years I went there, they never had enough money to repaint the auditorium, and I kept thinking, we're going to have paint curls falling on us, but they just never did. Maybe they just petrified because they knew they wouldn't go anywhere. The foreign language and the English wing was separating from the rest of the building. Most of the time when it was really cold outside, we got no heat down that hallway, and I took more than one class on that hallway. My French teacher, who was about 98 pounds to begin with, wore a ski jacket all through the fall and winter to be able to teach in that room. 
things have changed and Booker T operates now in a beautiful new building that was built long after I left. But the kids who went to school on the south side didn't have to deal with curling paint peels and things backstage that were broken and trying to do plays that only came off with the genius of Mr. Tom Poss, our stagecraft teacher, who would use bailing wire and chewing gum to fix things that had gone wrong back there because there was no money to do any better. Nobody said finishing strong would be easy. We need to keep talking about the race massacre and we need to finish strong. On a sort of similar note, I went to the movies Friday night and I watched Harriet, the story of Harriet Tubman. This was a far different Harriet Tubman than you find in any children's book that often gets pulled out in the month of February. This is a far different Harriet Tubman than the older stately lady I had always seen in the only extant portraits of her. This was a young Harriet Tubman. This was a Harriet Tubman you didn't want to mess with. This was a Harriet Tubman who in her 20s decided that she was brave enough to run from the place where she was held as a slave in Maryland and get to freedom all the way in Philadelphia. She went to the local pastor and he said, I don't think you're going to make it. If the copperheads don't get you, the coyotes will. And what he didn't say was, if those two animals don't get you, the white people who are looking for you will with their bloodhounds. She was young enough to run really fast and she knew the woods and she knew to look up to the sky because God told her, Joan of Arc style, in many visions, how to follow the stars, how to follow the ground, how to follow trails, how to use creeks and rivers as a way of masking her own scent that dogs would pick up on. She ran 100 miles and got to Philadelphia. She lost her shoes as the movie presents it, probably 20 miles into it. I don't know how many of us would get out to, say, Leonard if we were walking to McAllister this afternoon and took off our shoes and walked the rest of the way, especially if people were chasing us. Harriet Tubman lived to be 91 years old, and in those years, especially her younger years, she brought 70 people to freedom from the enslaved South. She made 13 trips. She made that first trip, which her abolitionist friend said was a sheer miracle. And when she said she was going back to get her husband, he said, you will die. You made it last time on a fluke. You will never get back. But she got back 12 more times. She was known as Moses. Some people thought she might be a man. Some people thought she might be a white person. Very few realized it was Minty Ross that they had known as a slave. When she made it to Philadelphia, she needed to write down her name in a book of residency, and she said, I want to change my name to Harriet because that was my mother's name, and she's the bravest person I know. Nobody ever said finishing strong, Harriet Tubman, would be easy. She was brave enough and she was dedicated to God enough to keep moving, to keep going back, to keep fighting slavery in her own way, and even to serve as a spy for the North during the Civil War. I don't think you should take your young children to this movie because at some point someone gives her a gun and she uses it. And there are a few scenes that I probably would shield my child from. But other than that, you all ought to go see it if you're above a very impressionable age and see how brave she was and how fearless knowing that, as she said, if I asked God to carry me through, God would do it.
She would say in her prayer time, God, it's all in your hands. I trust in you. And she kept saying in the movie and in her real life, I had two choices, freedom or death. May we all be as brave as Harriet Tubman in those challenging situations where we find ourselves. None of us, I'm sure, in this room are faced with what she was faced with. But whatever it is that's facing you, whether your spouse has just died, as I know one of you is living through right this morning, or whether you're on the other end of things and you've become a grandmother this year, this week for the very first time, or if you've lost your job, or if you are not going to make it financially through Christmas. Nobody said finishing strong would be easy, but with Christ's love on your side and with God's protection all through you and all around you, you'll make it. That's what we believe. That's what we, believe. That's what we say, and it's what we know. Amen.